out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastor. As you know, we love a special guest. Let's face it, we just love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the flesh tones because I spoke to Peter Zaremba to find out more about life, love, poetry, all that kind of groovy stuff. Anyway, this is the uh, interview. And as you know, we have a bit of casual chat to begin with. Well, we'd never met each other before. And I was fascinated with the curtains and the wallpaper that was behind his head. Well, just on the back wall, really. But after we got over that, I was um, talking, because he was in Brooklyn, I was in Norwich. Um, curious to find out if they'd played much in the UK and uh, he'd, if he'd come to Norwich. And this was Peter's response. Peter, take it away. Don't worry, the interview does get better. We, these days, uh, the flesh tones usually stick to London. Uh, we might toss in uh, a trip down to the beach, you know, uh, <laughs> be it as it may. Yes. Uh, uh, there's a nice pub down there to play. Um, but in the early uh, 80s, we toured Great Britain extensively for reasons which uh, remain a mystery. But uh, it, we really got to be uh, tourists, let's say. Yeah. Uh, we toured with this band called Nine Below Zero. We toured with a band that we liked very much called Plain Jane. Uh, if you could look them up, they were a lot of fun. Uh, but we 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 played everywhere uh, many times, and and our tour one of the really long tours. I mean, it was like a month tour or something. Uh, our tour manager was the manager of a band called Squeeze, uh, yeah. a guy named John Lay, uh, and he was like you know the quintessential. Uh, <laughs> you know, had the little trimmed mustache. Uh, it, it, he was great. He was like touring with. John Cleese, basically. Right. So, so we got to, we got to do a lot of great tourist stuff. I mean, nobody came to see us. But but, in, uh, but interesting enough, and I'm really excited what you said just about sort of 85 seconds ago. Because the first band, the first gig I ever went to see was Nine Below Zero, and it's one of those ones that often tumbleweed appears because people go, and it was like a the Ipswich Gomont. It was quite a big gig. It was. It was a big venue and well, biggish, and it was sold out. The crowd were going crazy. That was I was very young. I saw this band. It was like the lights, the guy with the harmonica. I was like, God, yeah. this, this is incredible. This is the best. You know, she does it right. Um, treat her right. I don't know another mm -hmm. one. I can't. They, they had about two big hits, didn't they? Um, yeah. Treat her right. Well, they, they they were just sort of, you know, even a little bit before they hit it. You know. Yeah. I was the other guy with the harmonica right. in the other band. <laughs> so, <laughs> and then Plain Jane, they were really great. Uh, they were sort of a neo-psychedelic uh, kind of freak beat-ish a bit, you know? Yes. Well, the and other they, week, the other week I did an interview with the guy from the Fuzz Tones. Um, so you must have known, come across them in your sort of musical part. Maybe not. The, the, the Buzz Tones? Buzz tones. No, no, Buzz no, tones. no. Uh, there, there were many, uh, there were undertones and uh, overtones. 
There was lots of times. Yes. Oh well, there you go. There was that. Would that was that was all good. So plain Jane, but nine below zero. It's got to be done. Yes, the clubs of that was the eighties for you. The Reagan years. That early eighties. Early eighties. The classic um, time. So playing those mecca halls or whatever they were called. Uh, mecca. Yeah, there was there was, and the university circuit as well. I suppose a little bit of university tossed in. You know, yeah. that was that was always fun. Meet the students. Uh, oh, absolutely. Uh, anyway, we we got to see some amazing things. Uh, you know, John Lay uh, knew that we were into it, and he knew that you know the shows were like they they were rough. You know, but we got to see like. Uh, you know, the, the Cern Abbas giant and, uh, you know, the, the great Eastern, you know, the ship and, uh, Stonehenge. Uh, Did you do Stonehenge? Oh yes. Yes. Before there was all that junk around. It. Yes. Oh, we certainly saw Stonehenge yeah. and many other, uh, Neolithic monuments. There was uh, we, we, we got to walk on a very remote section of, uh, Hadrian's wall, which I'm sure is totally forbidden now. It should be, but uh, uh, we got to. I don't know if the amusement pier in Red Car is still there, but we got to go to the amusement pier in Red Car in the dead of winter, which was one of the most dismal experiences. I was, it was so dismal, it was great. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? It was like it was that bad that it was. It was just I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to go in the summer. No. Um, uh, you know, and we we you know a lot of cathedrals. Uh, Churches. There was some isolated church way up in the way up in the Pennines or something where they swore they had the grave of, of Little John from the, the band of Merry Men. Oh, nice. Little John. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, so, you know, we went to the ruins of Bath. Uh, you know what I'm saying? We saw everything. You you know, we really well, did. I think I think the thing is, and, and as we all know, the UK, when you've been, you know, you're obviously from America, um, it's tiny, isn't it? Let's face it, you could fit it into your pocket. And um... there's a lot. Of, there's a lot there. You pack a lot in. You know what I'm <laughs> like here, we have a lot of space between things. Yeah, you have a lot of space. A lot of empty space. But uh, interesting enough, well, we'll talk about this later because actually, the, um, America mostly finishes off most British bands, doesn't it? That, that's the thing. They they don't realise what it's like their dream is to tour america and when they get to america they just go it's too big i can't cope we're going to break they can't up cope. Can't with the drives they yeah. can't with all the hamburgers and soda pop i mean look in the 80s um that was before your culinary revolution really <laughs> um, so i mean it was pretty ridiculous uh for an american but uh you know, but we, you know, look, we we lived on those twenty-five pence pies, and uh, the twenty-five pence uh, bag of chips with curry sauce. Yeah. You know, and 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 uh, and the beer was cheap, much cheaper then. So you know, we we survived quite happily. Yes, your cholesterol levels. But you were young then, so cholesterol. We young absorbed yeah. that. No one's going to worry about those. Uh, right. and, and, that, put, that and putting too much salt beer. on your chips is, you know, what the hell? Right, put a little salt and vinegar, and you're, you're all set. But look, look, we had a great time. We had a really so look, the fuzz tones. Look, what's, the fuzz tones. The, fu- the what's what's kind of fascinating because because without giving too much away, I'm in my um, mid fifties now. I'm born in the mid sixties. You look like so young. I know it's the it's the. Boat you time. might have you know what you might have been. At a show 
nine below zero, we might have opened. <laughs> it would have been I 19, think... I think, thinking about it and having a bit of a flashback, it would have been probably 1982. Uh, we might have been the opening band. <laughs> we might have been. Yeah, well, yeah. it, it was might have been throwing... Uh, you might have been throwing like bottles at us. Oh, no. I mean, the crowd, I mean, you know, when you come to East Anglia, to be honest, you know, in those days, especially, you know, it's 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 not as hip as other places, you know, when people were very, I just remember the crowd. It's nice out there. Pardon? It's nice out there. It's very nice, very civilized. And interesting okay. enough, I guess, because um, we had the so-called friendly invasion of 1943. So you're grandparents were probably stationed in the East Anglian region during the Second World War. Probably had a little admixture of... Uh, yes. Of, uh, who knows? Who knows what well, was going Well, it's a, it was an interesting story, but like, crikey, this is completely... But my mother worked with um, a person who didn't know the father, and it was like an American serviceman, and the mother, her mother said, look, I don't want you ever to track this chap down. But obviously, when the mother died, she sort of tried to locate him and eventually did and, and skipping the story a bit. Initially he said, shit, no, I didn't know. That's definitely nothing to do with me. And then his wife died and eventually they had this relationship, a friendship, you know, nothing that serious. Well, who knows? But, but he, did, he did say, yeah, I did have a, a couple of nights at the local dance with your mother and uh, I am probably your father. And his children were like, shit, dad. That's that's quite the family secret, and you know, you say like, well, I couldn't say anything when you when Mum was alive, but now she's passed away as well. You know, I'll I'll tell you the truth. It's um, and so yeah, I mean, it was kind of interesting the the American invasion in more ways than one. Hmm. So how how I mean, you just mentioned the fuzz tones, um, who were originally called uh, Tina Peel. That's and the ones. Yes. Mm-hmm. Rudy Petrudi. Rudy uh, Petrudi. Rudy Petrudi. And, uh, okay, the first time we ran into them was actually in 1978, or maybe 77, and there was something called the first national punk rock art show. And it was in Washington, D.C. And uh, we drove down, uh, I think it was maybe uh, our bass player, Marek Pakulski, who's no longer in the band, but a great guy. Um, he and I and a filmmaker named M. Henry Jones, you can look this guy up on YouTube. He made a film of us in 1977 called Soul City. We co uh, covered a Lou Reed tune. Um, it's been, it was featured in this art, <laughs> punk art thing. Uh, and we went down there with Didi Ramone, of all people. One of the bands playing, was uh, Tina Peel, because they were from Harrisburg, but they said, they go, oh, we're, we're from Washington, but they really weren't. They were from uh, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Um, and then uh, they had a big song then called Punk Rock Janitor, that stuck in my head. Um, and then four years later or three years later or whatever it was, they, were, they moved to New York. And all of a sudden there was another band called the Fuzz Tones and everyone's going, oh, you're not the... Fuzz tones, you're the flesh tones, and we're the flesh tones. And Rudy, Rudy always kind of played up kind of a rivalry thing, which was uh, never didn't really exist. Yeah. But but it was fun. But it was fun, you know. And I could, I got to badmouth Rudy, and he badmouthed me. But, he, <laughs> but but it really didn't mean anything. No. And it was like that. 
pro wrestling kind of a thing. Yeah, a little bit of slapstick with some sort of amusing clothes. Slapstick, yeah, we're big on the slapstick in our band. So if you don't, fuzz, 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 fuzz tone's a little unintentional slapstick, perhaps. Yes. But, uh, you got to laugh at yourself. And, and the funny thing, he's now in Berlin, actually. Hmm? He's now in Berlin. He is in Berlin. And we play, uh, play Berlin quite regularly. And he, he showed up once, maybe. But he's, uh, he's um, I don't know, he doesn't get out, you know? Yeah. So if you, talk, if you talk to him, tell him he should get out more. <laughs> no, no booty to get out more. Really. I, I will. But so, look in your formative, you know, the formative music years when you're about ten, eleven, and you, you, you know, in this country we had Top of the Pops Thursday night. Mm -hmm. We religiously watched it for half an hour. We only had three stations. We had very little entertainment in the UK, and um, that was it. Really, you guys can laugh at it. And quite, uh, right we didn't. Too. No, we loved it all. We 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 dreamt of like being having access to that. Yes, you know? but that, uh, that Thursday night Top of the Pops was a big thing. So for me, in the, that was the early 70s. It was like, you know, that glam period where you're just watching TV and your parents are already mm -hmm. disgusted by it because they're thinking... Is oh, I was, yeah, I was disgusted by it, but... Uh, and, and, uh, and you're sort of thinking, and so you love it even more. And then you had Alice Cooper doing Skills Out and you think, wow, this is great. And your parents even hate that more. So you're thinking, this is definitely good stuff. And so what were your kind of formative kind of teen period when you were started to sort of think hey that's that's kind of exciting stuff i might i might take that up as a living well you see with me it was a little bit a little bit different than that um the axis the crux uh, of my existence was that i being 10 years older uh, was had an older sister, two years older, and uh, she became a very early Beatle maniac. So, uh, you know, I was about 10 or 11 or whatever it was, 10. And uh, she rushed into my room and she says, quick, quick, buddy. That was my, uh, my family nickname. Quick, it's the Beatles, they're on the radio. And uh, I, came, I rushed into the room and they were, I think it was like, please, please me, or she loves you one of those and my first impression was i mean she had been talking about the beatles for quite a while and but this is the first time i heard them my first impression was that they were black because that was the closest thing to uh what that was you know what i was hearing mm. was like the white the white artists no longer sounded like that and then about a week later she rushed into my bedroom and says quick the, Dave Clark Fiverr on the radio. So, uh, and it was like uh, glad all over, you know? And Classic. they sounded completely black to me. Totally black. That was the closest thing, you know, because I had grown up, you know, the family radio was always on. So, uh, you know, I had heard everything on the radio. It was always on, the, everything was on the radio. That was the beginning of the British invasion. Yes. Um, uh, I became quite a Beatlemaniac due to my sister. Uh, I fell out of that, but then became very, very enamored. I fell back into it by like 1968 because I discovered what we called FM underground radio. All the bands I liked were on this FM radio. Uh, I was shocked. I was, wow, the Yardbirds are still making records and the Kinks are still making records and uh, the Rolling Stones, you know, I rushed out and bought 
Jumping Jack Flash as soon as it came out. Uh, and from then on in, I was hooked. Yes. The big crux of my life, though, was I was a little young, right? I'm like 13. It's like 1968. I'm dying to get into the action. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. 1969. I'm 14. I'm ready to go to like the Fillmore East and everything. And I did. But the music started to really suck. <laughs> you know? <laughs> It really went south. Yes. Uh, I mean, the Stones were still great. The Beatles really started getting quite wobbly. Um, zombies put out their last record. They broke up immediately. What, uh, about, what, were, about, what about the you know Hendrix and the Doors? And, and... Well, I love that. Hendrix it blew my mind when I first heard him. But by 1969, he was making what I call junky music, you know? It was like dope music, and it wasn't exciting. He was better off hanging out with the two Englishmen. Yeah, totally. You know what I mean? Meet you know. uh, yeah. The two, his two limey sidekicks. That was I. I, I can't listen to the records without them. Uh, and I wound up uh, uh, sort of becoming friends with uh, with Noel, who turned out to be a really good guy. Um, I would have died to meet okay. him then. Noel was the drummer. Was Noel the drummer or was Mitch? Oh, shit. I Mitch, get those two mixed mix up. I think Noel was the bassist and a, a swell guy, you know? Nice yes. guy. Anyhow, so um, I really, I know, I, I, I was like listening and I was like grasping for the straws, me and my friends, you know? And we basically hated everything. I kind of really liked the move at the tail end of the move. Uh, I liked, I really like David Bowie, uh, and uh, it's very—it's a very important show. He debuted his Spiders from Mars at uh, Carnegie Hall in New York. Was it Carnegie? Yes, I believe it was Carnegie Hall. Very important concert. Everybody that wound up being in any bands, you know, in the the big uh, New York punk explosion or whatever it was, mm. everyone was at that show. I was also at the big Alice Cooper, like they were second on the bill or something at the Fillmore East. Right. Their first promo show for Love It to Death, which it was an album to this day is maybe in my top five favorite albums, Love It to Death. Because at that point, it sounded like rock and roll. The guitars sounded like guitars, you know, sounded yeah. like we, what we called punk rock or garage rock or whatever. That was a great, that still is a great album. What about that whole Nuggets thing that people often talk about, you know, with the Sonics and... Um... Yeah, you know, I, I had heard, I had vaguely heard the Sonics and stuff like that when those records were out. You know, they weren't big on the East Coast, any of that stuff. You know, uh, things like uh, the Count Five, uh, you know, Talk Talk, things, that was, yeah. And those were all one-hit wonders, you know, all those garage bands. Yeah. That, yeah. I knew them all because that was on the radio, and I, I liked all that. One day, my good friend Brian Spaeth, and again, this is like around that time, you know, we, we got disgusted with Bowie with the makeup and everything. got annoying. Uh, my friend, I ran to my friend, and he had a stack of those 45s. He had gone home and dug through his 45s at home. And he goes, Peter, look at these. And it was like, you know, a psychotic reaction talk talk 
uh, dirty water, you know, the standells and all that stuff. He goes, this stuff is all, you know, and I said, well, yeah, it was all kind of like guys trying to sound like the stones, you know? And then I, I realized he was right. This stuff was great. Yes. Did you, Soon did, after, did you sort yeah. of have moments though with um, people, you know, like the Velvet Underground did, did that sort of first album? Yeah. yeah you know, the Velvets, I was aware of them. I heard this stuff on the uh, FM radio. Yes. And my, it was, I blame my cousin who was a big Velvets fan for ruining them for me because off the bat he played me um uh heroin which um epic epic song but kind of the wrong you know what like white light you know or something like that white noise yeah those songs you know the more groovy songs would have would have hooked me but he kind of turned me off with heroin you know Uh, did you were you at all aware of that whole 60s hippie counterculture that was happening because in 67 we had i know you're quite young then but you had the summer of love didn't you in san francisco i was very aware of it and i wanted a part of it you know know? at at golden gate park in january 1967 they had the the grateful dead and tim leary and totally all those guys and 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 then sort of that it came beautifully up to a woodstock kind of moment though i almost went to woodstock i didn't go to woodstock because um the the moody blues canceled <laughs> so so i i you know and, and my mom was giving me the money you know and, you and then she goes well, but buddy don't you want to go on that camping trip <laughs> and I, I said no no um and the moody blues have canceled and i don't really care enough about the other bands to go so i didn't go and then i i saw the stuff on tv with the traffic jams which i hate and all the mud and I said, man, a good thing I didn't go to that. You know? yeah. and of course, I don't know. See, you being a little older, it kind of takes the the, the vem and it defangs stuff like Crosby, Stills, and Nash, you know? Yes. I see, I was like totally grooving on all this psychedelic music, like you were saying with the hippies and whatnot. I wanted a part of that. I was a little too young, you know? I was listening to it on the radio. And then by the time I was kind of like ready to, you know, I was 14, but I was going to bars and stuff like that. Um, the music, like I said, changed, you know, and we were getting like Crosby, Stills and Nash and things like that, which I, I was like, no, no, no. It, it, you know what I'm saying? You're like, imagine yourself, you're like in an automobile, you're not driving, yes. you know, uh, and some insane person's at the wheel and they're like, they've driven off the road. And you're like, oh, no, you're not, you're supposed to be, you're supposed to go this way, you know? That's what I felt like with this music. It was like, wait a minute, this isn't supposed to happen, you know? It's supposed to be like Jumping Jack Flash and, and you know, the first two Jimi Hendrix Experience albums. And and you know what I mean? Uh, A few years later with Hotel California, you weren't there, were you? You weren't in that hotel, were you? Oh, you know what? Unfortunately, no one, you, you had no choice. You were in that hotel, and I, I wanted. You know what I'm saying? You could, uh, uh, like the song says, you can never leave. You know, uh, I wanted out, uh, <laughs> and my friends wanted out. I couldn't listen to the radio anymore. Quite frankly, I, I gave up listening to the radio. And I remember my friend Brian again. We we're up in his apartment, and he looks at me and he says, "Peter, what are we going to do 
when we get sick of listening to these old Yardbird records. I didn't know the answer to that then, but the answer became the same answer for me as the same answer as guys who like formed the New York Dolls or the Ramones. The answer was form your own band. Yes, this is true. And because before, cause in the UK, we had this thing called, you had to sort of touch on the glam rock and obviously David Bowie had slightly uh, put too much mascara on. And, and we'd also, I mean, to be honest, I'll have to confess, I did love all those bands like The Sweet and a bit of T-Rex and also Gary Glitter. Yeah, T-Rex, you know what? I, I didn't like T-Rex then as much as I should have because T-Rex actually was very coherent music, you know? He, had yes. a, he laid down a groove, right? And he you could dance to it. It was very coherent for its time. We were, we Shockingly were, coherent. We were going to ride that white swan, which, which seemed very profound at the time. Sounds good to me. Um, no, I liked a lot of that stuff, quite yes. honestly. Yeah. But, um, then, but, but then about 75, we had the pub rock scene that was kind of developing with, you know, uh, Dr. Feelgood. And in this, there was also another band by Richard Strange called The Doctors of Madness, who I interviewed. And he said, we were two years too early for punk rock, but everyone came to see our shows, formed punk rock bands and were brilliant in, you know, about 18 months time. So you were obviously also in that kind of very early camp of kind of people who were, who were starting to rebel without being called punk, really, weren't you? We were, we were revolting. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, okay, 1975, I, I, at that, I almost gave up on rock and roll totally. I mean, I still, you know, I liked Roxy. Um, there was a few things I liked, but basically I, I couldn't listen to anything. And Brian and I started seeing these little ads in the back of the newspaper, tiny little ad for a band called the Ramones. And we're looking at this and like, what you? you know, these guys all look the same. They're, they're brothers or what is this, you know? And then I went, I was in an art school then. And some people are starting to say, you know, you got to go down and see these Ramones, you know? So, you know, we knew Patti Smith was, you know, was starting to cause a lot of excitement, uh, you know, and, her band was really drawing on like, you know, the garage rock ethic a lot at those. And then, you know, they they were all hanging out at CBGB's. So uh, one night, uh, a friend of mine, a girlfriend, and I went and we saw the Ramones. Uh, It was very exhilarating. Uh, The set was only about 16 minutes long. Uh, They played like 12 songs in that time. And then the next day, I'm back at school, and this uh, girl who had suggested I go says, well, what do you think of the Ramones? And I said, well, you know, I really didn't care for them, you know? I, I have a fault of not allowing myself sometimes to like what I should like. So I said, you know, the songs were really short. There was no, like, guitar solos. And every song sounded like California Sun. So she looked at me and says, well, you hate guitar solos. You hate long songs. And you love California Sun, so why don't you like the Ramones? And I thought about it. I said, you know, you're right. I do like the Ramones. And so from that moment on, uh, I, I dragged my friend Keith down. Uh, we became totally, you know, then it was like you saw the Ramones, you saw television, you saw suicide, you saw uh, the dictators, you saw everybody. 
and within a few months we had uh, the flesh tones yes and did you and, by, um, and did and do and in that time obviously your girlfriend was incredibly hip wasn't she i mean jesus she I mean, was she, hip she was didn't hip. last long but no. she was she was very hip. Anyway, did you also see people like, I mean, Debbie Harry and, and Blondie and Chris and all that? Oh, kind? definitely. Um, you know, a Blondie would be like second on the bill with the Ramones and some other fabulous, but Talking Heads. Talking Heads were fabulous. They were, they were a trio, you know? Yes. And David Byrne was the only guitarist and he had to play the guitar. He had a little uh, Fender Jaguar. Uh, he was great. Uh, they were wonderful. Blondie was great when they they still had uh, they still had uh, Gary Valentine and oh, uh, Jimmy okay. Destre on on the Farfisa. Like no one was using Farfisas, you know. It was like wow, that sounds great. You know, the guy not only it's not a gimmick, he's playing the Farfisa and it sounds wonderful, you know. And he didn't have a bunch of like synthesizers up on the stage or all this stuff I hated. Oh, no. um, you you don't you don't love Rick Wakeman, do you? You know what? I I, I gotta say, I, I gotta cut Rick. Uh, I shouldn't. I like him. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I you know look any I can't listen to the music. Uh, but what would the world be without uh, you know the, the cape? Was it, yeah, the cape and the, and the, the wives of Henry Henry the Eighth. You know, yeah, like each. Wife represented by a different musical suite, you know. That's like, well, interesting enough, because, fuck, my, you know? because my brother, yeah. who was born in the late fifties, he his musical kind of period was the prog, you know, prog era, you know, because you know people have that. You know, you're only eighteen once, and that's when you're really obsessed with music, isn't it? Or sixteen mm -hmm. to to twenty, and I, prog, was, prog was his thing. And so I, as a young kid, used to sneak into his room and get these kind of records that he forbid me to listen to, and even be in his room because he was very like, "Don't you touch those records?" But obviously, you you want to go and listen to them. So I was like, kind of fascinated with you know Yes and Genesis and the solo work of, of Rick Wakeman. I I know King Arthur. Journey to the Center of the Earth and the Henry the Eighth. Uh, how, how many wives did he cover? The six of them. I think it must be six. I often get it wrong. Is it Henry? He didn't add a few. Um, no, I got, it's Henry the Eighth with six wives, not the other way around, isn't it? So yes, right. I and and you know one became sort of like suddenly. But interesting enough, he lives just in the same region. He lives down in East Anglia near um, a place called Dis. So there you go. He sometimes spotted still. In, in, now speaking of Rick. Um, oddly enough, I bought one of the first albums he was ever on. Uh, uh, I, uh, Rick Wakeman, um, because I, you know, I went through a period when I, you know, again, when I couldn't really listen. I couldn't listen to the stuff that, you know, I, I started listening to some of that British folk revival stuff. Yes. And, uh, I liked that because it sounded like music. Um, and uh, I bought the first Straub's album, uh, which was live, uh, Antiques and Curios, it's called. And Rick Wakeman was in the band then. Yeah. And it's a live album, flawlessly executed to the point where it sounds like a studio album, you know. Uh, but I have to say, there's one flub, musical flub on the whole album. And guess who does it? Guess who? Guess who? Yes, Rick Wakeman is a get, bum note. 
And, oh, kind of, right. and it's a shame too, because it's in a beautiful song called uh, Martin Luther King's Dream. He, play, he plays a very, uh, a very like uh, in, inspiring organ solo, you know, pseudo-religious kind of inspiring. Yes. And he hits a bum note, <laughs> but no, they I... leave it in. God also, he them. plays on Bowie's uh, "Life on Mars" as well, doesn't he? So, um, that oh, was... I didn't know that. So there you go. Yeah. That, that, oh, he's all right. Come on, give you know the capes and whatnot. I mean, you it know. was it was when you've had enough, probably I don't know, drugs and drink and cocaine in those days. Anything's possible, isn't it? Did you also because in that time that it was the early rise of of heavy metal and there was uh, about there was Black Sabbath and that first album. Did did that sort of creep into your sort of musical world at all with, you know, here in the... Again, very, very much unwillingly. Um, Black Sabbath was huge. And uh, uh, I, I was working up at a, a hotel on, a, on an island in the mountains, uh, in the Adirondack Mountains, you know, kind of our lake district, you know, but only it's bigger and there's more bears and stuff there. And uh, the, the help that I was part of, uh, we were like in a barrack, you know, uh, away from this grand old Victorian wooden hotel. Uh, and some of the guys in, in the next like cubicle or stall or whatever you want to call it, where we had our beds, had a record player. And the first uh, Black Sabbath album had come out and they played it incessantly. They'd play it. And when they were done playing it, They'd play it again and play it again. And I thought it was, quite frankly, the most moronic thing I had ever heard. The way, like, the bass and the guitar and the vocals all follow the same. I am Iron Man. You can do whatever you can. Whatever the, you know what I mean? Yes. It's like, what that? I mean, I, now I kind of appreciate the single-mindedness of it. You know, it's like... Again, I'm my own worst enemy because I would dismiss that kind of idea. I'd say, no, you can't do that. How can you, how can everyone play and sing the same exact melody? That's ridiculous. But yet uh, Ozzy and, and the company said, no, we can do this. Yeah. Anyway, they tortured me. They tortured me with that record. I would um, imagine. So where you, you can see where I'm heading, right? Yes. I had to form a band. You, know, you had to form a band. So, because everybody, you know, who, who sort of has that kind of dream, you know, even getting the band together is one thing, but actually creating a sound that anybody beyond your friends and family and anybody you can emotionally blackmail to go and see you is kind of quite a difficult thing. And most people have that kind of, well, we were in a band for 18 months. It wasn't really going anywhere. We were just about to break up and then we get this kind of break. So... You know, I remember Fast Eddie Pizzali from Motorhead saying that they had just kind of had enough because they were all broke still. They were sort of thinking, this isn't going to happen. And then they had one more try at it playing the marquee, I think. And then suddenly it was like, okay, we've made a sound that was, was kind of quite unique enough and wasn't just sounding like a cheap copy. So what, how did you develop in the Flesh Tones? And also, how, did you start to develop yourself as a, you know, as a sort of singer and harmonica player as well? You know, I, I was a closet harmonica player, basically, which is, uh, you know, studying the Yardbirds and the Stones. And uh, after a while, I was hanging out with uh, my friend Brian and his, his younger brother, Gordon Spaeth, who wound up being in the Flesh Tones. And, we, you know, we were harmonica guys, you know, um, learning, you know, Yardbird stuff, Sonny Boy, whatnot. 
um, I never felt I had the, you know, I didn't really have the nerve. So I was always forcing other people, uh, uh, proxies, right? Various proxies in, uh, in various bands to sort of do what I wanted. So, you know, there were bands that I was involved with and, you know, they were playing like, you know, the garage-ish kind of stuff, you know? And uh, Sonny Boy Williamson and early Stones and whatnot. Once, once we saw the Ramones, um, I said, okay, that does it. I, I am forced to be in a band, you know? Uh, so I, was, I went down to uh, my friend Keith's basement, and they had some old junky equipment there. And we, uh, they were jamming. And finally, I just whipped out my, my harmonica and started singing and playing the harmonica. And the band was born, you know. That was it. That and was then, it. And um, and obviously the name the name sort of fitted as well. I mean, just briefly, because it's always kind of one of those things that sounds incredibly romantic, even though at the time I'm sure it's not that amazing. But you had CBGBs, and you also had Max's Kansas City. How do you exactly? How do you? How did those two venues compare to each other? Because because I've seen you know some fantastic kind of books have come out recently special Max's Kansas City and it does look like such a happening place and obviously New York has that reputation of being at the time sort of like almost abandoned by you know everybody and just kind of it go, was that was it, it totally was it was deserted but you know, but but, but at the down. same time you had you know like the you know the the birth of punk almost don't tell Johnny yes. Nelson though and uh, and rap, and you had disco, and then you had this kind of amazing poverty. So, so, and all these junkies and lots of issues. Oh, they're, they're, yes, yes, you're quite right. Junkies. So how, so, how did that sort of, how did you cope as a young person being in such an environment which sounds, you know, like you know it works out fine? So, you look back with a bit of nostalgia, but what was it actually like at the time when you, when you look back at those winters and you're thinking, Jesus? All of a sudden, it seemed like all of the things that I thought that I had missed forever by being a little too young, you know, to be in on that 60s thing, all of a sudden, I was part of the underground, you know, the art world, the music thing was happening, and it was very exciting. You know, uh, me and some mates had a loft around the corner from Max's. Uh, Max's, Max's was, you know, kind of felt like it was a little past its heyday, you know, like, uh, with the velvets and all that, that was like a year or two before yes. and, you know, the dolls and whatnot. So some of the more slightly more glam influenced people hung out at Max's, but it was still a cool place to hang out. Yeah. Um, and you also now, had those, there was also a punk band who I didn't done the interview called I did pure hell or pure evil I can't remember they were black guys in a punk band who have become slightly sort of I suppose I don't know people look back now at that scene and went oh yeah there was this band that very few people they did a song uh, Nancy Sinatra's these boots are made for walking did you sort of cross come across them on your sort of rock I don't I don't think I came across them no. um there were a lot I mean we saw a lot of bands um and it was it was pretty much CBGBs or Maxes, you know. So very, I mean, CBGBs was a great place to hang out too because basically all the people in all those bands, you know, you mentioned Blondie or or the Ramones or uh, Suicide or, or Mink Deville, uh, 
television, um, the dolls, X dolls, whatever. They all hung out in these places, you know. Um, yes. And and Keith and and, uh, and I uh, became very huge fans of Suicide. Like, odd, odd, you know, some people find that unusual, but it wasn't unusual at all uh, because they were just like, if you want rock and roll, they were the most minimal rock and roll. And we appreciated the effort that uh, Alan put into his performances. Uh, you know, the effort usually wound up driving everyone out of the club, uh, except us and maybe one or two other people. And he, you know, he, was, he was abusive to the audience. But I think as a way of shocking the audience into realizing that they weren't watching TV, you know, because uh, early 70s, uh, audiences and band relationship got to be very um, distant and static, you know. And he was really into breaking that down. Uh, Iggy times 20, you know. Yes. He so, and he, oddly enough, became a fan of ours. And then he was the one who said, well, I want you to, I want you to meet Marty Thau, who had been the, basically the mentor behind the dolls and their manager uh, for their real, you know, rise to fame. And Marty uh, said, look, I'm, I, I'm going to, I want to record you. I want to record suicide, you know, and uh, we'll bring you to like, I don't know, Sire Records, you know, we'll bring you to, Mr. Stein, or whatever his name was. Mr. Stein, everyone. What was his name? Who was in charge of Sire? Uh, uh, it's on the tip of my tongue, but so it doesn't make any difference because he did. I I did get a, a rejection letter from him, oh, which God. I should have kept. I should have kept it. We had a bunch of them. They were very funny. Something. Anyhow, so Marty Thau said, "Look, we're at Max's. We we're walking upstairs. I remember that very well. We we're on the staircase, walking from downstairs at Max's to upstairs at Max's." Uh, maybe to see Suicide play. And he goes, Peter, Zaremba, I figure, Zaremba, listen to me. Forget getting signed to another band. I'm starting my own label. And I thought, oh, no. You know, I didn't say that, but I thought that. I was like, oh, <laughs> no. You know, <laughs> I want to I be on, I want to be on a great label. So uh, he goes, you know what I'm going to call it? And what, Marty? He goes, Red Star. What do you think? <laughs> like in my mind, I was like, "Oh man, it's like some like old commie kind of imagery or something." I don't. I don't you know, that's good, Marty. You know, whatever. So he did sign to Red Star Records, you know, and he made that first Suicide album, and it kind of hit the skids. You know, we got one forty-five out of it. We did record an album. Um, anyway, so that was the Max's scene. Yes. So and that's a long way. And did it feel, I mean, just briefly, did it feel exciting when you went, oh, there's Andy Warhol? Or was it just like, yeah, there's Andy Warhol and Lou Reed? No, that was very exciting, you know. Uh, But Warhol, we wound up, you know, we wound up having my bass player, Marek Pakulski and I, after, let's say, um, like CBGBs would be open until 4 a.m. And after that, we started hitting the after-hours clubs. So we started going to discos. uh, And they were quite exciting, you know. Uh, Very strange clientele, six, seven, eight in the morning, you know. Yes. But uh, 
I started going to Studio 54 uh, because I realized that I had, you know, people hated disco, you know, death to disco, disco, you know, whatever. Disco Uh-oh, sucks. Little, disco sucks, right. You know what? I'm going to, they started, I realized that disco did not suck. A lot of disco was great. A lot of it was, a lot of it did suck. I hated the Bee Gees, but a lot of it was just the new R&B, you know, the new, and, and it was danceable. And it wasn't disco's fault that most rock and roll had become undanceable and unlistenable. Yes. Uh, disco, and I started digging this like R&B disco, high energy R&B disco. And then one night, who comes up to me at studio but Truman Capote? And he goes, uh, do you know Andy? And I said, no. And so he goes, well, Andy's sitting over on the couch. And it was true. Andy, every night, Andy Warhol would be on the couch with Bianca and uh, Truman and uh, a bunch of other people, Steve Rubell, the owner of the studio. And he goes, well, Andy would like you to come over and talk with us. So I I went over and uh, I spent, basically spent the whole evening with Warhol. And uh, he goes, do you know Bianca? I said, no. You should dance with Bianca. So I danced with Bianca, you know. And she goes to me, oh, you dance so good. <laughs> I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. I thought, you ever see the Three Stooges, Larry Fine? Yes. You know, he was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've been warned that I have a low battery. So we're going to talk until, but get, get your pertinent things in. Jesus you know, Christ. I'm okay. enjoying this. Okay, well, okay, look. So, look. I'm enjoying God, this. Um, so look, you've got the, God, you haven't got a um, power pack, have you? Look, so when you just kind of briefly, because we haven't even got into the 80s, when you suddenly went, oh, God, we're really happening here in New York. Shit, look, never mind the bollocks. Did that, what was your, you know, moment that you suddenly thought, okay, this is quite, th- these guys are over there doing quite some crazy stuff. This is not, you know, this is not Fleetwood Mac here. This is, you know, God save the queen. Oh, no. Look, as soon as we saw the Ramones, and then you know every you know everybody else, the switch went. This is great. That's why we were doing it. And like you know, within a month or so, we were playing at CBGBs. We were playing at Max's. We started getting our own scene together because we wanted people to dance to you know because we were more garagey, and a lot of people were accusing us of being a, a twist band. Blondie was quite pro- partial to us. Yes. Uh, uh, and they wound up helping us out. Um, but we had a struggle, you know, we really did. And it wasn't until 1980, uh, we almost broke up. Marty said, you know, I was still hanging out with Marty Thau, and he goes, look, we're hanging out with Mary and Faithful. Uh, so, okay, you know, and to me, I was thinking, this is a bit of, you know, sort of over the hill pop star, you know, uh, mix ex-girlfriend or whatever. So we were hanging out at her apartment a lot. It was kind of like a, a I don't know, we were sitting in a circle like, on our, our living room floor smoking pot uh or whatnot you know and, uh, that's kind of very 60s kind of thing and then marty says look we're going to try one more thing let's record again uh but let's get like some of the like some of the guys from blondie will fill the band out we'll record a bunch of songs we made an album two songs each from five young uh new york bands the comatines student teachers uh uh, Bloodless Pharaohs, which is Brian Setzer's first band, ourselves, 
uh, and uh, 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 the Revlons, who were a very promising band then. Um, and because of that album, who comes and gives us a call but Miles Copeland, uh, who was fa- uh, managing the police yes. and uh, uh, starting his own record label, which was called Illegal in Britain, IRS. and uh, yes. and wound up being IRS Records. So yes. from there on in, was that a game changer? Because because having seen quite of a few. Because because Miles is quite the cunning fox, isn't he? He knows what to, what he's going to do, and he's the cunning be... gray fox. He was, mm-hmm. and uh, a man of few words. But he, you know, at that point he goes, "Look, I'm I'm put together a new type of movie. It's only songs by bands. There's no story. It's just bands playing songs, one song after the other. I want you to be in it." Um, and that was Erg, the Music War. You know, oh, yeah. everyone was in that. And then he goes, and I'm starting a new label and I want to sign you guys. So, you know, he was going to sign us and the cramps and, uh, you know, uh, so that, yeah, that was, you know, from then on in, you know, uh, but right at that same time, we had done uh, Stiff Records had put together a thing called Start Swimming, where they brought uh, six young, so-called young New York bands to to play at the Rainbow Theater in London, um, which kind of melded into this whole thing. The, the show was a disaster. Um, uh, everyone hated us and the rest of the bands, but it was it was good. It was our first time to London. Right away, uh, we were recording for IRS. Uh, Nineteen eighty, everything started happening. Everything's good. So look, because because the other, you know, one of the most important bands that everyone seems to love. I mean, you had quite a lot of different scenes. You had that. Suddenly, you got into the post-punk period with people like Magazine and Peel and Gang of Four. Then the kind of that indie rock stuff started happening with people like Echo and the Bunny Men. And then you had the Dear Old Smiths. Good the, lads. Uh, the June, the June. Yeah, there was another band called the June Brides and the Go Betweens from Australia. Mm-hmm. And then you had that kind of mainstream sound from in the UK, which had that Trevor Horn production sound that had, you know, they did sort of like Frankie Goes to Hollywood and... uh, Oh, yeah. And then ABC, and there was other bands like Duran Duran. So you had that kind of pop thing. Um, And then you had the bands like The Cramps and and that kind of rock, psycho rockabilly kind of vibe that started to take off as well. So you, you sort of you're not really in any camp are you really you're sort of there yeah no we're kind of we're kind of falling through the cracks a bit you know yes but then people love but but the cramps are one of those bands everyone loves don't they they we're good friends of the cramps Um, they're the ones but then you bring out your album the first album because you'd been together for sort of a good sort of five years before this hits the hits the sort of shops isn't roman yes because roman gods right we had made an album with marty called blast off that uh, didn't come out. Only a single came out. We were, did a few odds and ends. We did an EP starting with, with Miles, which uh, we hated. Miles hated it. Miles t- took the test pressing uh, when we did the listening uh, with him and his brother Ian's office in Manhattan. And I remember Miles getting up, taking the, the, the acetate off the turntable, looking at it, and flinging it into the wall. <laughs> so... Um, uh, but Roman gods, okay, we're in London, right? And I forget why we're in London, but we're in London, and we're hanging out at the at the place called the venue, 
And we're quite friendly with everybody. You know, people knew who we were. They kind of liked us somehow. And a writer, I'm trying to remember his name now. He was a good, really good guy. And he goes, look, there's someone I want you to meet. This guy is going to produce you. He's never produced anyone before, but he's going to produce you. So we're at the venue. And, and I go, well, okay. And it's like really loud music. I forget what they were playing then. And he goes, so, so we go down to the men's room in the basement. And I met, I met Richard Mazda, our future producer, in a bathroom stall. Uh, and, and I said, yeah, you're the guy. Excellent. So uh, we did a 45 with him uh, while we were still there in London. I don't know why we were in London so long. But uh, we went to like one of these old demo studios on Denmark Street down there in Timpan Alley. And we cut a 45 with him uh, called The World Has Changed, a song that wound up being on, on Roman Gods and another song called uh, All Around the World. It might have been a third song. I'd love to dig it up. Yes. Um, uh, and it was an incredible session. And we loved working with Richard. And so he wound up being the producer. So uh, things were happening, you know. It was fun hanging out in the East End. This was, again, before the, your culinary revolution. And uh, it was pretty amazing, pretty amazing stuff. Yeah, it was like, what, I'm sure you only saw this stuff in movies, you know. It's like you're watching like an old, uh, one of those old kitchen, angry young men kitchen sink movies, like uh, whatever, or uh, carry, one of the late carry-on movies. Carry well, uh, yes, well, those 50s films, like A Taste of Honey and Saturday Night, Sunday Morning, right. and, and A Kind right, of right, exactly. we, we loved all, We loved all that kind of black and white, angsty yeah. relief. It was black and white. It was very black was and white. It was pretty it? black and white then. You know, you, you, I remember we were at some, recording that record, and I went, there was like a tea bar. Or so, I feel we, we'd call it a luncheonette. And it was like, um, they had hamburgers. I ordered a hamburger. And they were keeping them warm in like a, a steam table and a, a pot of hot water. And they fished out the, you know. And I was like, uh, that, you know. And they had, they had ready-made sandwiches stacked up, you know, on the white bread. With like, white bread. With the thin, like a thin layer of like uh, spread on corned beef, but like maybe an eighth of an inch less. Yes. And they were... They were, you know what? Okay, they were exactly like in uh, Hard Day's Night when Ringo gets the sandwich in the pub, and you know, and and the top of the the white bread is stale and it's bent up like that, and he <laughs> keeps trying to push it down and it's stale. They were just like that. It was, I mean, they were only like twenty five p, but you know, all the um, same. Yeah, we you know we we were still struggling from the war. It was still it was, it was, right rationing. It was, it was still poverty in the 80s. So look, it's all, be, di- it's all different now. It's great. I it, love it. Well, hopefully. But God knows now. No idea. But, but um, yes, because most bands I've realized have this, uh, you know, in the UK and especially in that kind of 80s period, have that five year narrative, you know, where they get together 12 months, they're sort of playing a bit of music. It's really, you know, we had a DJ called John Peel who was like the go to oh, yes. guy. Oh, yes. Mr. Peel. Yes, we knew Peel. 
So Peel would sort of give you a, a play and then a like John Peel session with someone like Del Griffith, who was the Mott the Hoople bloke doing his kind of production at Made of Vale with the BBC. So everyone was like, wow. Then the first album, you know, everyone was kind of happy. Second album, a bit tricky. And like I said, if anybody ever comes, you know, like for the UK, we're like, oh, we're doing really well now. We'll just go and do America because that's, that's, that's the next place that we should definitely yeah. do. They would then just come back broken into pieces, just just ripped apart. hating each other yeah they hated it and hating it was yeah no i mean probably a few people have said yeah we had a good time but most people just said no that broke us we it was just was horrendous you know we were just done we were done by the you know like the doll said too much too soon yes <laughs> So with your, you know, with your band, you know, obviously your narrative is completely different to most people. You know, you're, you're, you're kind of, you know, one of the few people who have really stuck with it and have been incredibly prolific. So, and, and through... We enjoy it. Because... But, that, but might be, that might be it. I guess so. We but, actually, you know, like with, with the, you know, so as an example, with the, the 80s indie stuff, people like having a quite a good time. But after five years, things are kind of like still struggling, feeling a bit asthmatic with it all. And then suddenly ecstasy comes in and there's like dance music. They go, oh, fuck, we can't do dance music. We're going to get, you know, everyone wants, you know, like the Stone Roses or the Happy Mondays or Primal Scream, that kind of sound. And then you get grunge and that kind of knocks them bands. And then you get Britpop and then you get, you know, so all those scenes kind of often make people feel exhausted. But how did you keep the kind of energy and the kind of passion going when, you know, through- we, you know, we never really, you know, we never really fit into any of those things, you know, uh, yes. and enough people in all of those scenes would like us, you know, and, uh, and say, well, you know, like we we saw you guys play, and and heard your records, and uh, we like you so much. That's why we formed our band. And you'd be shocked how many bands set, come up to us and say that they don't usually say it in their books and stuff. But like you know, the, I don't know, Hoodoo Goos or whatever, the Stems. I was just talking with uh, Dom Mariani, and you know, he goes, well, you know, the Flesh Tones was such a huge influence on. Uh oh, uh oh. Oh, Hello. No. Hello. It's going it... to go soon. Oh, my God. So have you not got a charger? I don't have it handy. Oh, um, my I, God. You don't... I could. I could. I, let me, oh, let's, uh, let's run. Let's run. Where to? We're going upstairs. Look at this. In a dark country home. Yes. Do you know, I did, when I did my interview with the guy from um, the, the Fuzz Tones, it was, it was on, on, on Zoom, and all I could see was his whites of his eyes. It was really spooky. The Fuzz Tones? Are you talking about Rudy? Rudy. He was Hello? It. Hello. I'm still there. I'll tell you my story. It's, it's not a rock ah. and roll. Have you got your charger? Uh-oh. No, I got it. Oh. They're a whole new scene, man. Look, a new nice, room. Nice wallpaper. No, like when I when I did Rudy, if it, you kind of feel like I kind of feel with this wallpaper that I'm back on that first British tour, and I'm like yeah. in one of these places that we we'd stay. I remember there, the, there was a book that came out in the '90s. I can't remember the author, but it was Notes from a Small Island. It was about an American who came to Britain and just travelled around. He wrote all about his experiences staying in bed and breakfast places and all those kind of cafes and res- not restaurants. Cafes. Oh yeah. 
yeah. We, yeah, that was usually our, the bed and breakfast you know, world. Our first few tours, you know, uh, extensive, you know, all the way up to Scotland, uh, all the way out to Cornwall, uh, everywhere, and playing and uh, staying in these bed and breakfasts, uh, which was good because the, you know the breakfasts were good. Uh, that was the best meal of the day, as they used to say. And uh, but you know, a lot of them were like uh, uh, social assistance. Uh, you know, council, uh, I, I don't know how you call it. Uh, yes. People on the dole, or, uh, mental, uh, people who are incapable of working or, or, or don't want to or whatever. That was the kind of, kind of hotels we were in. Um, yes. But it was great. It was great. But look, Anyhow. So, so look, you got your first album, it was 82, okay? But you'd already, you'd come to the UK to promote that with your tours with both um, Nine Below Zeros and, did you say Squeeze as well? We played with Squeeze, but we, uh, mostly it was that um, we were kind of on the same label or something. Uh, and John, John Lay, their manager, um, really liked us. I mean, he just wanted to hang out with us. So he wanted a tour manager, for, uh, tour manager these long tours for us. So uh, that, that was great. It was great uh, traveling with John. Um, that was a... You see, the first time we came to Britain was uh, 1980. And for some reason, we, we were there a lot. I, I don't know how that happened. But at the same time, our manager wanted us to go Hollywood. Uh, and I believe I hated that idea. Yes. I, I, I thought that they were like, uh, you know, I'm very East Coast, very New York. Uh, New Yorkers are more... Um, uh, oriented towards Europe and Britain and stuff. Uh, I thought that what was going on in California was what I was trying to get away from, yeah. totally. But we wound up being very good friends there with people. Uh, and again, uh, helping out bands uh, to, to sort of focus like the the Plim Souls and stuff like that. Uh, all good. All yes. good. Oh, oh. So as... As, as with all bands, especially ones who keep going, like Marky Smith and The Fall and, I don't know, various other people who, who've kept the faith, how did you deal with sort of members coming and going and sort of having to sort of... Re- oh, they didn't. They stayed, for the they most st- part. Um, you know, we had our drummer um, in the early days, Lenny Calderon the second. Yes. Um, he was a great guy. Um, really couldn't keep time very well, which w- for us was not a good thing because, you know, we did like to play danceable stuff. So uh, we kind of, we broke up for like a week. And that's when Marty said, look, l- let's get, get you guys back together and record this thing. And uh, like uh, Clem from Blondie will, will drum for you and Jimmy will play uh, the Farfisa for you because he can play it better than you can, which was quite true. Uh, so then, but then we were, to, Keith and I were hanging out in East Village, uh, in this Polish coffee shop, uh, cause we had this job and, uh, a guy overheard us talking, uh, saying how, look, we're, you know, we, we have, we're playing with Clem, but we need our own drummer. And the guy comes over and goes, look, uh, I'm a drummer. Um, uh, and we go, oh, do you play with any bands? And he goes, yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I do a lot of stuff, cabaret stuff, 
uh, for some of these like people in the, the Warhol circle, like uh, Hollywood Lawn and stuff like that. But I'm also uh, uh, in this rock band called uh, Harry Tuxedo, Harry Toledo, excuse me. Yes. I said, oh yeah, we know that band. Uh, we've seen you. Uh, you know, you're a good drummer. You're in. So that that was Bill Milheiser in very early 1980, uh, and he's still our drummer. Um, we lost our bass player Marek, uh, original member, in the late 80s. Um, he just did. He, he just couldn't hack the you know playing anymore. Uh, we had a few guest bass players. Uh, Fred Smith from television was our bass player for about a year. Uh, Andy Chernoff, of all people, one of our heroes, uh, brains behind the dictators, uh, was our bass player. But we needed, you know, we needed a, our own permanent bass player. And uh, a guy named Ken Fox, Canadian guy who was in Jason and the Scorchers, yes. someone said, oh, why don't you try that Fox guy out? Uh, and we were in the middle of recording an album called uh, Power Stance. Um, Andy Chernoff was was our bass player then. Uh, he's the guy from the Dictators. Anyway, there was one song that, that had like sort of a funky, you know, popping bass thing, you know, yes. like funk disco thing. He was hopeless. Andy can't play that kind of stuff. Uh, Fox came in, did that and helped finish up the album, and that's it. And so uh, that was like 1990, eight, late 89, 1990. Uh, he's been our bass player since. He's the new guy. He's the new guy. So, so it's yes. not like the people coming and going, you no. know what I'm saying? No. But how did you, I mean, because there's a few things, actually. You've worked with people like Steve Albini as well. You, as yes, you. we did. With with uh, Peter, but how did you find Steve Albini? Because he was the kind of go to producer for a, for a while. Because we loved all his work he did with Big Black and then Shellac. And um, Albini, was... you know, Albini knew who we were. You know, uh, it, 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 these people all know who we are, basically. And he kind of felt maybe he could help us, <laughs> and we thought maybe he could help us too. Uh, it didn't quite turn out that way. The the best thing that that Steve did with us was we were almost done mixing the record and it was just me and him down in the room. And he turned to me and says, what do you guys need a producer for anyway? <laughs> and I said, you know what, Steve, you're right. And we never, since then we haven't really worked with a producer. You know, we produce ourselves since then. Mm. We have people, recorders, recordists before, and the record before that was with Peter Buck. Well, that's an easy one. Peter is one of those, uh, that's one of those bands where they, uh, we met them on our first tour of the States in 1980. Before they formed the band, they threw a party for us when we played uh, for the first time in Athens. And, uh, you know, later on, they, they, they came up to us and said, look, we've put together a band and we'd love it to, to open for you guys, uh, you know, because uh, seeing you play, made us put together a band. So that's R.E.M. Yeah. So that's one of those bands that got together because, uh, you know, they saw us. You were the and, uh, So Peter said, look, you know, you know, I've always wanted to produce you guys. So he, he had a whack at it. 
uh, for what, whatever results. Yes. Um, well, it's interesting because um, I, I did this interview with Fast Eddie from Motorhead, and he said that uh, they'd got together. That was the, the classic, th- you know, lineup that he had in the very early days with Elemi, uh, Filthy Taylor, and him. And they did two albums with a producer they got on well with. Then the drummer hated it, and the, you know, so the producer left. So Lemmy said to you know, like Fast Eddie, the guitarist, "Why don't you produce it?" And he said the problem, you know, that was just like the the beginning of the end of the band, really, because it just didn't work, and the whole situation wasn't good. So how how do you sort of work without a producer? Because that seems to be one of the critical things of getting the sound, and also that get keeping the band together really in the studio um you know we've had our experience with people producing us and like i said albini finally said what do you guys need a producer for you know um and so since then you know it's it's sort of collaborative with, with the band i mean i have to say i throw my weight around uh a lot but keith does more uh, a lot and then kenny then you know bill a bit um, but mostly they'll go with what I'm saying. Look, it, we try to work with someone who knows how to make a record. Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, Jim Diamond, right? Yes. Okay. Uh, I'd, I'd make a record with Jim any day, you know? He does what we, what we tell him to do, but then he'll say, hey, why don't you try this? But he's, a re- you know, he's an engineer. He's a recorder, what we call. Um, same thing with my our friend Florent Barbier. French guy, you know, he records us. Um, uh, our newest one, uh, a guy named Michael Giblin. You know, what kind of, I, I, I don't want to put my name down as a producer, uh, uh, you know, or anyone, you know, uh, produced by the Flesh Tones and Michael Giblin. How's that? that now, nice. that said, if, if some really exciting producer said, look, I want to record a couple of songs with you guys. But you got to keep your mouth shut. <laughs> do what I say. Um, I, I might do that, you know. I might do that. Yeah. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like a really good producer. Like, uh, who's that guy that, that renovates everybody, you know? Um, American guy. Uh, but, you know, he did it with uh, Tom Jones and... Uh, oh, uh, um, yeah, the Beastie you know, Boys. Yeah. yeah. Reuben. Rick Reuben. Reuben. Rick Reuben. That's the movie. Come on. Yeah, you know, if Rick, if Rick Rubin said, uh, "I want to do a Flesh Tones forty-five or something," I'd say, "Okay, I'll, I'll keep my mouth shut," you know, just to see what he would do. So you see, but, so look, slightly fast forward in a decade. Yes, you, we'd have you, to. You, you have that moment of of, of playing in the at, the at the World Trade Center, which was one of the, the one of the last bands to play there. I think we were. Yes. I think that was the last. Okay, that was the last public. Um, you know, thing I know that for a fact because uh, they canceled the series of sh- of shows after our night due to uh, complaints of noise. Uh, it was us, uh, the A Bones. I'm not sure how much uh, you know them. Uh, Norton no. Records. Uh, Miriam Lina, who was the drummer of the Cramps uh, during their best period. Um, that was her band. We wound up being good friends and staying good friends. Uh, uh, some girls who danced, uh, the, the Pontani sisters. Um, oh, yeah. And yeah, and this is at a place called the Windows on the World, which was like the bar venue uh, at, the very, at the top. And it, as it was happening, 
I remember saying to Miriam, like we were looking out the window at, at quite frankly, at jets coming in because uh, it was in the flight path of uh, two of our airports. And it was at night and the twinkling stars in the very clear night, looking at the twinkling of the lights in the harbor and the, and the jets passing us almost at eye level. And just saying, this is such a night to remember, you know, such a night to remember. And it wound up being that, you know. Uh, so, yeah, that was pretty much, that was the last, uh, I mean, there might have been a private affair or two after, uh, after that. But that was the last uh, concert show. It was great, too. It was, it was one of these weird things where it's like, you know, we never played a place like that. And it's like, it begins with like, there's a whole bunch of holdovers, uh, uh, you know, Wall Street types yes. that came for their, came for their after work cocktails. <laughs> and uh, and wound up not leaving, you know. Uh, so they were uh, plowed, and then you know the odd tourists that drifted in, and then the rock and roll fans, you know, that were fans of uh, the Flesh Tones or uh, the Pontanis or you know the people in that scene. And it wound up being an incredible evening. You yes. know, it really was an you incredible have, evening. You must have had sort of uh, chills. Uh, uh, yeah, I'd say yes, yes, chills. Especially um, after after hearing the news a few weeks later. Yeah. But then, yep. sort of fast forward and again, you tour China, and and there was another band called Liebach who did something like in Korea, which were one of those bizarre tours. What was what was that? How did that come about? And what was the experience of going to China like? Loved it, loved it. Uh, we were with a band called Round Eye, who are a bunch of expats living in Shanghai. Yes. And they brought us over and we toured with Ch uh, Round Eye and they really uh, babysitted us through this whole thing. Uh, and we played a, a bunch of shows around Shanghai. Uh, there's a great club there. And it was kind of like this guys, you know, it, it's very underground. It is the real underground, you know. And like people are, you know, you knew Johnny Thunder, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, we knew Johnny Thunder, you know. Uh, the, you know, it's like, it's almost like you're meeting one of the apostles, you know, it's like, uh, you know, meeting, uh, let's say one of the lesser apostles, a Thaddeus or something, you know, it's like, it's, it's not quite like meeting uh, Christ, but it's like, oh, this is, you knew Christ, you know, <laughs> you knew Johnny Thunder, you know, uh, so you know, it was quite good. And yes. the people were really into it, you know, and there was a club, a similar club like that, really underground in Peking, Beijing, uh, it was wonderful. And the Chinese were quite open. And, uh, you know, when you meet uh, people from China, very often uh, hardworking immigrant types, you know, in uh, the UK or in the US, you know, they're harried and, and they're working 22 hours a day or whatever. And, uh, you know, they, they're not in their element, really. Uh, in in China, everyone they were surprisingly open and cool, you know. Uh, yes. They 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 you know we were curiosities, of course. Uh, but wherever we went, they were very, everyone was very very nice, and uh, you know they didn't look at you twice uh, if you were getting drunk, you know, on the on the steps of your hotel and with paper bag bottles of beer. You know what I mean? They were like very relaxed. Excellent. Uh, yes. It was not what, what you'd imagine. Uh, well, the tr we, we did a few overnight train trips, like from Shanghai up to Beijing, 
uh, we loved it, you know, absolutely loved it. Um, uh, so playing China was great. You know, the, the few t times that we played Australia, again, because uh, the Hoodoo Gurus, uh, again, that's a band that's like, you know, confided that they formed basically uh, inspired by us. I mean, I'm sure they felt they could do it better, <laughs> which they might. Is that, um, with, but, is that with Ed? Yeah. Is it Ed who's the main guy for Hoodoo Gurus? Ed? David Faulkner. David Faulkner. He's the man, isn't he? And yes. Brad Shepard. Brad Shepard is his cohort. Um, great band. Great guys. Because bands who... I know quite a few who are still trying to keep it going. You know, the, the, you know, there was the band called The Godfathers. I remember, you know. Oh release, yes, release well, we played with The Godfathers. Releasing albums is all very good, but it's it's about playing live and and selling merchandise and getting your fans. And in the UK, playing Europe, especially the German market, is kind of critical. So is that the way? the flesh tones keep it going because because obviously you've done a hell of a lot of albums but you know slightly different you know all of our albums i mean we've always made albums you know i don't uh you know we don't i don't think we make them as often as we, we should but there's always a new album you know and that's what we're playing you know uh and since we never were i mean we were sort of you know we had our heyday in the 80s but it wasn't like we're like living off that, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's, well, most people, always like, most people sort of say they don't, they're not really, I mean, they want to make a new album because they're creative artists and they feel like they don't want to just play something that they recorded 30 years ago. But that album isn't going to sort of pay the rent, but going on tour, doing the crowd, you know, doing the merchandise, getting the crowd, you know, is what keeps the sort of the money sort of rolling in and keeps the sort of whole wheels of the band going. So how do you manage to sort of keep, you know, the fuzz tones going in that way? The flesh tones? The flesh tones. Did I say the fuzz tones? You did. You did. Um, but that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. I, I, you know what? Although I wouldn't be able to answer that question. Although, although I, I know, see, Rudy, they, the, his bands are, you know, there was the original bands, you know, with Alan, Alan Portnoy and Deb and those people. That was actually quite a good band. But then for Rudy, it became very interchangeable. You know, it's Rudy Petrudi and whoever he gets to learn the set, you know? Yes. And he's gone for decades without making new records right we've always made new records uh and that's what keeps us going you know so and oddly enough there's still people who discover us you know uh which is nice yeah well, so, absolutely uh, you know so but, you know, we have this like small following in germany of you know the hardcore uh rock and roller types you know uh France has always been a very good place for us, you know, it's uh, where we're considered an important band in France, at least critically, uh, which is nice. Yeah. Italy is quite good. Uh, Spain is our second home. Uh, and then, you know, Canada and, you know, and uh, the States. So we say... Um, is, so is it the live performance and the sort of the, the, the business that goes around on that 
particular sort of part of the the kind of operation that keeps the band rolling on you know sort of i'm just kind of curious how no no although we playing is is you know important and it helps that we enjoy playing and that uh that we you know people do tell us that live we do things that no other band does so that's a good thing you know like uh People get something from seeing us that they don't get from seeing other bands. Uh, and it's not just the songs, you know, it's us and what we do live. That's important. But what Keith, our guitarist, and, uh, you know, my colleague all these years said, you know, I thought we were, we were probably talking about some band, you know, that's like together with like all new members basically and, and, and still touring because they had one good record in the 80s. And he goes, I could never do that. He goes, Peter, we're together because we keep making records. That's what keeps us together. Yes, absolutely. And, and so that's that's your answer, really. Yeah, but then I suppose I'm slightly curious. Just how do you manage to sort of keep living as a member of a band? You know, when you know, records it, it can be hard. This is okay. This, okay, this year, of course is exceptionally bizarre, right? This is the year that's not a year. Yeah. Uh, normally speaking, uh, between being in the band, uh, playing live, uh, the records, uh, and then maybe doing some, you know, I'm also a DJ on the radio with little Steven's Underground Garage. Yes. So between that, uh, you know, it's not, a, it's not like, a, you know, I'm not driving a Porsche. <laughs> or anything you know i'm not throwing money around i, I but i never you know the, the whole rock star image you know all of uh, johnny thunders and stuff like that always turned me off anyway so you know i'm not like uh, demanding bottles of champagne i mean i like do you like do you like champagne yeah i quite like a fizz yeah know. right I, you know it's, it's, it's i like it you know but you know i mean i'm not gonna I'm not. I'm not living, you know, to to have a bottle of champagne backstage. You know, uh, if it's not a bottle of back champagne backstage, that's quite all right. Yes. Uh, uh, you know what I mean. So we're getting by. Keith has always been quite frugal, you know. Uh, but you know, he's done the odd jobs. But our our main thing is the, this band, you know. Um, and this year and you had you had a new album. The face, face of the screaming werewolf. The face of the screaming werewolf. Yeah. I can't, I know, I, I had to call the album that, because I, I, I kept turning that phrase over and over, like, face of the screaming werewolf. It's got a ring to it, you know what I mean? Absolutely. Uh, there's a movie called that, uh, that won't inform you at all about why the album's called that, but you should watch it. Um, it's, um, okay. That album should have come out last year. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and then they, and then they said, look, we're going to coordinate the release of this with record store day in, uh, March or whenever it was supposed to be. So, okay. We'll hold off on the, the record. And of course, then record store, we better record store day is being moved to April. No record store day is going to be in June. 
Well, Record Store Day never happened because of COVID, you know? So then they said, okay, we're going to put this record out on Halloween. So, uh, I, oh, you know, Halloween 2019? No. Which Halloween? Well, 2020. 2020 Halloween. Okay. So it will come out. I, I, you know, quite frankly, I would have been comfortable making another album by then. Yeah. It's a great album. You're going to like this album. And you've David. got, yeah, I know. Well, I've, I've heard, you know, the last few singles, you got to love, love. Mm-hmm. And it's, kind of psychedelic. It's very psychedelic, very catchy as well. So the music is still coming to you very easily, isn't it? Or Easier. easier. I'm serious, easier. Oh, yeah, easier. Easier. Because when I listen to that single and and uh, God, the one called Alex Trebek, Alex Trebek, Trebek. he's a he's a, a a game show host, a Canadian fellow. He's from he's from Sudbury, which is also the hometown of uh, of uh, Miriam Lina, the Cramps drummer in their heyday. Uh, it's way up north. It's a mining town, quite dismal. Uh, I mm. love it. But, uh, yeah, okay, those two songs are unusual because those two, Keith sings. Although from the very beginning of the band, Keith was also like the second lead singer, you know? Yes. And just, just um, in, because, I mean, you are one of the great rock and rollers, let's face it, anybody. You Thank know, you. Like, there is, there's a few people, you know, I loved, you know, David Bowie being one, Lemmy from Motorhead, and both of them, there was no plan B. They were going to do music. That was it, you know, and you're, you're also, there is no plan B. There is no plan B. So what would you, if you could say anything to your 18 year old self, what would you, what would you have said to them back then in the seventies when they were starting out? If there was something you went, Oh, actually most of this is good kid, but just, you know, just a couple of little pointers just along the way that might help. What you. I would have said to myself is learn to play bar chords on the guitar because it's so damn easy and then you'll be a guitarist as well and it'll be a lot easier to start your band then i would have started my band in like 1973 and uh or 74 and it might have been a slightly different story slightly different but i would think massively different yes but Still. Oh, it still would have been rock and roll. It would have been rock and roll. Of this sort, yeah. Oh, yeah, but sure. You, but when you I've been it, listening to the same junk for my whole life, so. <laughs> well, I know, you know? but an amazing story, amazing story. But look, well, thank you ever so much for your time. And we got it together so vaguely easy. That was amazing. <laughs> yeah, man. It was you know good. what? Yeah. Do you, do you, do you watch um, Grand Design? Um, Grand Design. I did once. Grand, who? It's, the, it's, the, it's about architecture, people yes. building homes. Oh, well, I know the one with um, the guy who. Kevin McLeod. Kevin McLeod, yes, I, I remember it well. My partner loves it. She thinks it's great. She likes that. We, we watched that. We're, we're catching up with that because yeah. we've, run out of, we've run out of escape to the country. So. <laughs> Yes, Kevin McLeod. The funny thing is, I watch Escape to the Country, and it's always like, oh, I know where that is. We we played there, you know, with John Lay when he was touring, and yes. we played 
we played everywhere. Listen, thank you very, very much for your time. And, and uh, so, you know, I, 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 I enjoy doing this sort of thing. Um, I enjoy talking about rock and roll and bands because, you know, I, I'm like a lot of people you might talk to. Uh, I'm not a musician, really. I didn't start as a musician. I wasn't like, uh, oh, I'm a guitar player, and now I have to find something to do with this skill. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? I, yes. I'm a fan of music and decided that I had to be in a band to create the type of music that I like, you know, because uh, I liked a certain type of music and it wasn't being made, or at least not what I heard in my head. Oh, low battery. No, not again. Listen, I'm, what I'm just saying is, is that I came to this by being a fan, you know, not by being a musician. And I learned to play keyboards in my rudimentary style because I was in the band already and yes. had to learn something and had some ideas in my head, you know, that I wanted to put on the record. And eventually I did learn to play the guitar. But I, I, I have a great guitarist in the band, Keith, and so there's no need for me to really play the guitar. So, you know, I'm just saying to, the, you know, if you like music, um, why not try to create the type of music you want to hear yes. and, uh, and enjoy doing it? Because if you enjoy doing it, it's an, you're an immediate success, right? Yeah. Like, I really enjoy performing. So if, even if the money's not so great, we're making the type of music that we want to hear and also enjoying it. And people tend to come to us and say, we love what you do. Uh, and we're, there's an, enough people in the world that will say that we're their favorite band or that they formed their band because of our band to make it all right. Okay. Yeah. So Which it's is, all right. It's all good. Well, it's amazing. Yeah, it's all good. Oh yeah. I was just going to quickly just say, did you, have you managed to archive all your shows and, and I know you've got your music, but I just, I, I, I haven't archived anything really. And, you know, I had, I had that TV show in the mid eighties that, that wound up being pretty influential here in the States called the cutting edge. Oh, uh, yes. The virus is the cutting edge. Everyone was on that show for the first time, like their first time in national TV in the States was on that show. Um, I don't have that, you know, <laughs> I don't have those, so I don't know. I didn't even get to watch that as it was on because I didn't have cable TV. So it's like, I don't know. Did I do that? That's going to be the title of my, they say, well, you know, write a, write a book. It's going to be entitled, Did I Do That? Did I do that? Um, did, could someone tell me? Did I do that? Yes. Do well, look, that? that's amazing. Well, thank you ever so much. And um, stay safe in Brooklyn. Are you in Brooklyn at the moment? No. Uh, we're in, we've escaped to the country. Nice. Uh, there's not much you can see out that window, but it's quite lovely. Uh, we, I was, I, I, I got up in the middle of uh, early in the morning to use the bathroom. I was looking out my bathroom window and watched a bear walk across our our, our back lawn. So, uh, <laughs> so we have bears. Um, we shouldn't <laughs> because it's it's quite populated here. Um, it's in New England. It's in in Connecticut. Yeah, uh, but in the country, it's quite nice. Um, I should send you one or two of the other songs from this album. Oh, yeah. Okay, then. Maybe one that I actually sing. I know. You know? Sorry about that. 
I'll, I'll send you two songs. Okay, I would love to hear them. I'd really love. I would love it. I would love you to hear them because it. otherwise it's quite a wait, you know. It is. But I mean, quite quite honestly, um, you know, little Stephen uh, from uh, the E Street Band, Bruce's guy, right? Yeah. I I do. A, uh, he has his own radio channel here, and I, I'm one of his DJs. So uh, we played him, uh, not we, but the record company sent him Face of the Screaming Railwolf. And he got back and said, this is the best album you guys have ever made. So, all right. <laughs> you know, took that's, a while. That's good. It took a while, David. But uh, you got so me. in other words, you know, we're not recycling and no. we're not running on fumes, you know. No, that's good. You know what? After four, after over forty years, we're finally getting the hang of this recording thing, <laughs> <laughs> which is good. Yes, well, that's good. Well, look, that's brilliant, as they say. Yeah, thanks for your time, and thanks for your thanks for you know having intelligent, all these really nice things to ask. Okay. Yeah. Well, look, take care, and um, do do remember if you can. Um, yeah, the files that would be brilliant to hear them. And one day I'm sending you two more songs before, before I I don't want to sound too dramatic, but before the sun sets, I shall send you two new songs. How's that? That would, that would be MP3s. They're they're faster. How's that? Yeah, that's even better. Okay. Look, thank you ever so much. And um, it's getting dark here. I need to put the, put the light. Yes. Yes. It's good. Daylight has left you. Although you're further North. So you have a little, more daylight than us. Yeah, slightly. Anyway, look, take care. Okay. See you later. Bye. Bye. I'll end it. Bye. Bye. Have, have a drink. There you go. How not to finish a conversation by David Eastall. Example 59. Hello. This is... <laughs> Hello. Well, goodbye, really. Yes, and that was the interview that I had with the Flesh Tones. That was Peter Zaremba. We found out more than we really wanted to. But anyway, it was good. Thank you ever so much for that, Peter. And if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do at C86show. It's always nice to hear from you. Um, keep it positive. And also, all these shows have been archived, so you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, what not to like. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe. <laughs>